Let's have special prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we open your word tonight, that the Spirit of God will be in our hearts, that we will understand these things, these, these messages that you have for us. We ask for a special outpouring of your Holy Spirit to guide us. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In our last session, you know, every good story has a villain and a hero, right? Almost every story you can think of, there's a villain and a hero. In our last meeting, we talked about the villain in the book of Revelation. And who was that? Satan, the dragon. Okay? And tonight, we're going to talk about the hero of Revelation. And Cheryl must have read my script because some of the stuff that she asked in that uh, question I took so much time on, some of it relates to what we're going to talk about tonight. So let's look at the hero of Revelation as we unfold the book of Revelation. During the Second World War, the Japanese <clears throat> were tapping in on the communications of the Americans. They were breaking every code that they used. And they had some very, the Americans had some very top secret information. They had to communicate to the forces. But they didn't know what to do about getting that message through. It just so happens that in the military, there were a, a small group of people who were Navajo Indians. And the Navajo Indians, up until more modern times, their language was just a spoken language. It was not a written language. And it was only in more recent times that it was committed to writing. And so what, what they did was they took some of the Navajo uh, soldiers and they put them in strategic places with the intelligence service. And one Navajo would take the instructions, the orders that had come to him, he would convert it into the Navajo language, and he would transmit it to another Navajo who would then un- uncode it, so that his, uh, decode it so that the soldiers could get the right instruction. And try as hard as they could, the Japanese could not break that Navajo code because it was in the language they weren't familiar with. It wasn't until the time of President George W. Bush that these men who had been so valiant in coding and decoding the, these important messages were really and finally recognized and awarded for their, their service. It's interesting that the Bible is written, in large part, the book of Revelation is written in code. It's actually written in code. Now, why do you suppose it it would be written in code? First off, where is John when he's writing it? He's in in a, a Roman prison camp on the Isle of Patmos, right? And how would, how would you like to be there writing and you're, you're writing, uh, the Caesar is a fink. 
What's going to happen if you've got a Roman guard looking over your shoulder? You see. So they used certain words that had they understood. We do that today in modern language. Um, I, I had several in mind, but they slipped my mind. But we have different coded words that we use. And only those who are familiar with it understand what you're talking about. And so we find that God uses signs and symbols. When they talked about Babylon in the scriptures, well, they couldn't really be talking about Babylon because what happened to Babylon a long time ago? It was destroyed, right? So what were they talking about when they said Babylon? It's very interesting if you look at, I think it's Second Peter, maybe it's First Peter, at the very end, Peter says, and Peter is writing it in Rome, and he says, uh, your friends in Babylon send you greetings. You see, to them, Babylon and Rome were interchangeable. You see, just like today, when I lived in Maine, when we were up in Maine and somebody was going down to Boston, or they were going to New York, we would say, well, I'm going down to Sodom today, or uh, I'm heading for Gomorrah. You know, we knew what they were saying, but nobody else around us would know what they were talking about. And so this is how the Bible was written. It was written in signs and symbols. Beasts meant something. We mentioned uh, last time horns and crowns meant something. But the, the Roman guards could not translate them. In addition to this, you don't want to reveal your game plan to the enemy. And don't forget the devil. The devil has read the Bible. Doesn't mean he completely understands everything. But he's read the Bible. And if you're going to give away your game plan, uh, you're shooting yourself in the foot. This is the reason why it refers to our salvation as being from eternity a mystery. You see. It was a mystery until it was revealed. And this is what the book of Revelation does. It reveals about God. It reveals about Jesus and the plan of salvation. And so we find that this idea of coding and decoding is uh, significant. And we'll hit some of those things as we go on. In Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants. What were they? Things that were shortly to come. And he signified it. He signified it. He put it into signs and symbols. Then he gives it to his angel to give to John to give to us. So, if he's going to do this, then he probably very well will give us what those signs and symbols mean because they reveal Jesus. As we look further, we find in Revelation 1.3, it goes on to say, notice this, there's a threefold blessing 
in the book of Revelation. Blessed is he who what? Reads it. Now you've got to remember that at that time, there were many people who couldn't read or write. So they would receive the, and not only that too, but they didn't have a whole lot of stuff in print because everything had to be copied by hand. So what they would do when they received a letter like the book of Revelation was, they'd have someone stand up front and they would read it to the congregation. And they would get a blessing from it. So blessed is he who reads and those who hear, understand the words of these, this prophecy and keep those things that are written in it. A lot of people hear things, but they don't keep it. You know, you can tell, try telling your teenager or something and see, see how long it takes you to get through. You know, it, oftentimes God tells us things and we really don't hear it. That's why he says, those who hear, let them understand. And then it says, for what? The time is near for these things to be fulfilled. So there's a threefold blessing. The word blessed means happy. It's, there's actually a name that corresponds to this. It's Asher. The name Asher means happy. You see. And so we find that God promises that he will bless us. Now what about the apocalypse? I mentioned a few minutes back, I mentioned about the apocrypha. The apocrypha means hidden. But apocalypse means to reveal. It's an unveiling. So sometimes people get those two words mixed up. And sometimes they'll try to sound very knowledgeable and say, well, you can't understand the apocalypse because it's a hidden book. They don't know what they're talking about. They're crossing two words, you see. The word apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means unveiling. And what is being unveiled? It's, what's being unveiled is the personhood, the character of God. Now, I want to take a minute just to mention about the character of God. God actually has many names in the Bible. The most exalted name that uh, he gives in the Old Testament is Yahweh. Actually, we don't even know how to pronounce it because it was all consonants. Y-H-W-H. Try saying that. Don't put any vowels in it. Just all consonants. My name's Bob. B-O-B. O is a vowel. The B's are consonants. Now, if I leave the consonant out, my name would be b right? It could be Bub, it could be Bib, it could be what? Anything that you want it to be, you know, any consonant you want to put in there, you see. So what did they do? They took the consonants from the word Yahweh, and they, or Yah, Yahawah, it's actually closer to it, and they took the vowels from the word Adonai, which means Lord, and they took the vowels out of here and stuck them in there, and they came up with Yahweh. Now, there's no, there's no J in Hebrew. It's a Y. 
But when it was translated into English, the Y became a J. Instead of Yehovah, it's Jehovah. Now you've got to realize that a W and a V are the same letter. Did you ever see the, uh, some of these buildings? They make U's that look like V's. Okay. So if you get two V's together, you get a two U's, which is a double U. You see? That's where the etymology of the, the, uh, the letters come from. So the word Yehovah became Jehovah, which became Jehovah, you see. But God has other names, El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. And he's got others, El Roy. And the Bible uses a variety. Now, why does he do that? Because each of these names represent his character. He's trying to tell you something about his character. That's why the name Jesus Christ is not a name. It's a description. It means the, the one who saves, who is the anointed one. The Messiah. That's what it means. And so we find that when we say that I believe in Jesus and I am a follower of Jesus, are you representing the character of the name that you're professing? You see. That's why he says, don't take my name in vain. If you say, oh, I'm a Christian, and you're about robbing, stealing, committing adultery, and cheating, that's false advertising. And you're actually taking the name of the Lord in vain. When Peter wanted to prove that he was not a Christian, what did he start doing? He started cursing and swearing, didn't he? Ooh, I'm going to meddling. When we need to be careful of our lips, because when we start taking the name of the Lord in vain, we may be telling the world we're really not Christians, even though we say we are. So we find that the name of God is important. And this is what he wanted his disciples to do. He wanted them to represent him properly. This is the reason why he put in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Right? And if you look at the commandments, he says, if you love me, you're not going to commit adultery. If you love me, you're not going to steal. If you love me, you're not going to, what is the other, be mean to your mother and father. If you love me, you get the point? We'll talk about that later. All right, as we look at this further, we find that the Bible was written by eyewitnesses. Now, when I say eyewitnesses, most of them were Jews. The Gospel of Luke was written by a Gentile. Luke was a Greek, right? But Matthew and John, they were disciples of Jesus. Mark was a young man when Jesus was around. And Mark, I could tell you some stories about him, but I'm not going to do that. 
But anyway, these disciples, even uh, Paul, he may not have been among the disciples when Jesus was here, but he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he communicated personally with him. So these are eyewitnesses that these things are true. The Bible was not written by historians. Now, it's true in the New Testament, the book of Acts is a book of history. But it was written by Luke, who was, a, who was working with Paul. And I do think that Paul kept him straight on these matters, too. As we, they wrote these things down. How did they write them down? They wrote them in manuscripts. Many of these ancient manuscripts are still in existence today. Not the real early ones of the New Testament, but maybe uh, but copies of those manuscripts. There are some of the, the uh, Old Testament books and materials that are still available. Did you ever hear of the Dead Sea Scroll? When people tell you the Bible you have today is different from the, the, what they had in the time of Jesus, all you have to do is go to the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found, I was in Israel. I saw the cave where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you know what? When they, when they opened the book of Jeremiah, it's the same book of Jeremiah that we have today. And we may say, well, yeah, but things have changed a lot. Here is my latest copy. just came today of Astronomy Magazine. I get Astronomy Magazine. I like that. And anyway, on page 16, it says, Ancient Civilization Tracked Jupiter. Way back in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, they found a clay tablet and they couldn't figure out what it was talking about because it had a bunch of numbers on it that they couldn't translate. Then they found another clay tablet that told what those numbers meant. And when they studied it, it says this, and I'll quote it to you. In other words, they were doing abstract geometry more than 1,400 years before historians thought the procedure was invented in Europe. Who was the modern civilization? Were the ancients more modern than we, in many respects? 1,400 years before Europe started using advanced geometry, the Babylonians already had it. Stonehenge, the man who devised Stonehenge, had to have the IQ of an, of an Albert Einstein, especially to make a computer that could predict eclipses of the sun and moon 52 years in advance out of stone. I can't get this computer to work right. How could they get that one? So we find that even though some of these manuscripts are very ancient, we are discovering through archaeology that they are accurate. They talk about people. They talk about places that actually exist. They actually talk about King David they're discovering. They actually talk about Jesus. Pilate is mentioned. Is the word of God accurate? Is it trustworthy? I believe it is. And I believe that God sent it to us. This is the Dead Sea Scroll, one of them. 
as we go into the book of Revelation and look at it, people often ask, what about the mistakes that are in the Bible? Yeah, there are a few things here. I mean, that Jeremiah that they had, guess what? There were a few punctuation marks that were different from what we had. But the content was the same. You've got to realize that in the ancient language, in the Hebrew, and even in the Greek, they didn't use commas. They didn't use punctuation marks the way we do today. And so they had to put those in. But we find that sometimes copyists, they might make a little mistake here. But the content was the same. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew copyists who copied the Old Testament They would have several of them and one man would stand up front and he would read it and the copyists who were writing these manuscripts and they did a similar thing with the New Testament. He He would read it to them and they would write it down and then at the end of every sentence, every line, they would go and they would count the words and they would count the letters. And if there was a letter off, they crumpled it up, threw it in the wastebasket, and started all over again. You can see how tedious that would be. In history, back in the 1700s, there was a printer who made a mistake. He was printing the Ten Commandments, and he only left out one little word, just one little word. And he ended up in jail for it. It's called the immoral Bible. Why? Because that one little word where it says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. He left out the word not. And what happened? They threw him in jail because of it. This was serious business to those people back then. Our Bible today, we have 66 books. And these 66 books were written by about 40 different people on different, three different continents over the course of 1,600 years. They did not have communication with each other. Last time we were here, we were looking at what the Bible says in Revelation about the dragon. Then we went to Ezekiel and saw what he said. And we went to Isaiah and saw what he said. They didn't even live in the same time period. But when you put them together, you get a picture of what Satan was like. The same thing with the scriptures referring to Jesus. As we put these texts together, we will find that we're not building a doctrine around one text. We're building it around a collection of texts. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. When you put the pieces in, then the picture emerges. And so it is with the Word of God. And I'm thankful for archaeology that's revealing many of these things. Just as I read to you from Astronomy Magazine. And I also get archaeology and biblical archaeology. And they're constantly digging up stuff that confirms the Word of God. Now, you can also go to historical works. Uh, Thales, we think of Josephus, Tacitus. These 
different writers talk about Jesus. They even mention the Christians in the early church and what the Christians were like and how they were being persecuted. If you don't want to go there, you want to find the Bible to verify the Word of God. All you have to do is go to Daniel 2. That's why we spent so much time on it. How can any human being today outline the history of the world with 100% accuracy over the course of 2,600 years? And if you think that's something, read chapter 11 of the book of Daniel. And boy, I'll tell you, if you know the history of all the gymnastics God had to go through just to get Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. All the historical events that had to be maneuvered around and twisted around so that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. It's fantastic. And anyone who says that the Bible is just a book of fairy tales doesn't know what they're talking about. The more I study the scriptures, the more I'm convinced that it isn't the word of God. And what was it building toward? That image that we saw, it was building toward the rock that would crush all human history and the kingdom that he himself would set up. I mentioned to you the first gospel in the Bible is found in Genesis. Genesis 3.15. And there it talks about the seed of the woman who in the process of crushing the head of the snake would be bitten in the heel. Now, my friends, if you had to have your choice between somebody hurting you by hitting you in the heel or crushing your head, which would you take? You see, one may be a temporary injury, but the other is permanent. And we find that Jesus received the temporary punishment, the sacrificial punishment. In the process of killing the snake, he, the snake bites first. He gets struck. And he had to give this life so that we would not have to die the second death. But the devil will die both, as we'll see later. Yes, God gave us this, this prophecy with 100% accuracy so that we know that the word of God is true. And when we come to him, there's no book on earth that has proven itself more effective in changing the lives of human beings. I think the, the greatest witness to the, the validity and the truth of the Bible is the way it changes human lives. That is the greatest testimony. The Bible fills us with hope. It's a book of hope for those who feel hopeless. It's a book that isn't to be followed by blind faith. It's to be followed by informed faith. We find that John, who wrote it, who wrote the book of Revelation. He wrote the Gospel John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote these, why? To reflect on the character of Jesus. 
This is what Jesus came to the earth to show, was the character of the Father. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen what the Father is like. As we look in the scripture and we examine the character of Jesus Christ, he also shows us what the Father is like and what we should become. You see, Jesus Christ was both human and he was both divine. Right? You are all human. The Holy Spirit is all divine. But when the Holy Spirit takes his divinity and comes into your humanity, he changes you into the character of Jesus. This is what the text means when it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And when Jesus comes back in his glorified being, we'll be like him in character. We will resemble him in character. He's coming to gather his own. This is what John is trying to get across to us in the book of Revelation. If you go three chapters into this book, you'll find that within those first three chapters in Revelation, there are well over 140 times that Jesus is mentioned. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ in every sense. And notice what it says about Jesus. It says, Behold, he's coming in the clouds, and every eye shall see him. When Jesus comes back, it's not going to be something secret. Oh, he's, he's in New York. Let's go see him. He came back to Jerusalem. Let's all get together and go over. Uh-uh. No, when he comes back, everybody will see him. There are some who say, well, he, he reveals himself in the clouds of your mind. You know, the foggy, fogginess of your mind, that's the cloud that's lifted. And I will see him with my spiritual eye. Uh-uh. I remember when I was taking Greek, I, asked, I was studying with a group of people who believe that. And uh, I, I remember that's what they told me that text meant. So I went to my Greek professor and I said, hey, this is what they told me. What does that text really say? He says, well, it says that he's coming in those things up there and you will see them with these things in here. That was his deep theological explanation of that text. Sometimes we try to make it too hard. How many times do people say, well, I'm not a Christian, but I'm a spiritual person. You know, what you're saying is you're not a disciple of Christ. You're not into the word of God. You're not following what God told us. Because God tells us to study the word and it will reveal Jesus to us. And soon he's going to come in those clouds. The return of Jesus is the keynote of the book of Revelation. There's hope for the future. There's hope. For those who are looking for him. There's hope for those who are committed to him. As you look further. You will find in Revelation 1.13. It says. And in the midst of the seven lampstands. One like the son of man. Clothed with the garment down to his feet. Girded about his chest. 
with a golden band. And as you look carefully, it sounds very much like the way the priests were in the temple. If you hear, it shows seven separate candlesticks representing the seven churches that were in Asia. Those seven churches represented different characteristics of the Christian church from the time of the apostles through to the end of time. They are symbolic of the church at different stages of human history. And the last one is called Laodicea. Laodicea means what? What? Somebody tell me. Anybody know? Ah, I was waiting for somebody to say that. She said lukewarm. That's the characteristic of it. But the word Laodicea means the church of the judgment. It's the, it's the, it's the condition of God's people in the time of the judgment. They're sleeping on the job. They're lukewarm. And so we find here that that's what those uh, candlesticks represent. My friends, if that is the situation, don't you think it's time that the sleepy church began to wake up? Don't you think it's time that we make a commitment to Jesus Christ? Too often we're afraid to make a decision. We're afraid to take a stand on the side of God. Sometimes we like to sit on the fence. But what is he saying? He's saying, get off the fence. If you don't get off the fence, you're going to fall off the fence. In the end times, there's only going to be two classes of people. Those who are ready to meet Jesus and those who are not. And you know what? It all begins with the decision. Deciding whom shall I follow? Who will be the guide and the leader in my life? So many times I've seen these bumper stickers. God is my co-pilot. My friends, God wants to be your pilot, not your co-pilot. When you say God is my co-pilot, you're saying I'm in charge and he's uh, just there for a spare. We need to let God be our pilot. He's the one that needs to be in control of our lives. Tonight, as we close, and there's so much more we could talk about, but come back for the rest of the story tomorrow night, okay? But tonight, I'd like to ask you, have you made a commitment to Jesus Christ? Maybe you've made it in the past, but you've drifted away from it. Wouldn't it be wonderful to come on home, to come back to Jesus again and say, Lord, I want you in my life. Each of the table leaders, you have a batch of cards there. If this is something you would like to do, I just invite you to look at that card. 
There's just four questions. You don't have to fill it out if you don't want to. But you know, a lot of times we say, yeah, I think I'll do it, but I'll do it later. Make a commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Notice what it says. There are four questions here. I have accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. The second, I once knew Jesus, but have drifted away, and tonight I want to recommit my life to Christ. Thirdly, tonight, for the first time, I choose to repent of my sins and accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, believing in him for forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. I have questions regarding tonight's topic. And if you have questions about anything we've talked about, write it on the back and just leave the card on the table. My friends, we studied before about the villain of Revelation. Tonight, we've studied about the hero of Revelation. May he be the hero in your life. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful word of God, for the wonderful Savior that we have in Jesus. We know that we are saved because of our faith in you, but we are also judged by our works because our works validate the faith that we profess. Lord, help us to bring our faith and our works into harmony and to stand firm for you. Thank you for each one who is here tonight, whether they fill out a card or not. Grant them thy blessings, O Lord, and guide in the life of each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.